Are you eager to learn more about law? Me too. Hello, my name is Sarah Chayo. Welcome to A Question of Law, a podcast created for law enthusiasts who want to increase their knowledge and deepen their understanding of the law. Our guests, legal professionals chosen from an array of legal professions, will explain to us the fundamental principles of a specific topics in the areas of expertise. Then, they will educate us on new legal developments in their fields in the form of a recent case law or new legislation. They'll share with us their opinions on the ramifications of these latest advances. Finally, we'll talk about their career path and uncover some great insights about their lives and experiences. So, if you want to feed your curiosity, enrich your mind and get inspired. Take a break, sit back and remain tuned in. Domestic violence is a terrible scourge with a scope often difficult to assess as it frequently happens behind closed doors. Before becoming violent, the relationship is almost always abusive and both of these assaults on human dignity can leave long-term scars. Our guest, Jim Allenfield, barrister at law, will help us understand the downward spiral into domestic abuse and the law around it. Whereas in normal times, on average, two women are murdered by a partner or an ex-partner every week, this number has drastically increased during the lockdown. Locked up at home, under a permanent threat from their partners, these victims often feel that they have nowhere to escape. The drastic cut in specialized local services means that 60% of women cannot find accommodation and are therefore more likely to stay in this precarious environment. A new law proposal, the Domestic Abuse Bill, is being discussed in Parliament and will make some positive changes to the situation. Leading charities in the field have generally welcomed the bill, yet it has also received harsh criticism for failing to address essential elements linked to domestic abuse. So let's start the discussion. Hello, Gemma. Welcome to A Question of Law. I'm extremely proud to have you on this podcast. Hello, and it's a pleasure to have been invited to talk about this very important topic. Gemma, you were called to the bar in 2002 and have since worked for two prestigious chambers, Seven Bedford Row and Five St Andrews Hill. You are a multi-talented barrister who specialises in various areas of law. Your expertise in public law has allowed you to excel in high-level extradition cases and human rights cases nationally and in foreign jurisdictions. Your work is highly praised and you have been described by Legal 500 and Chambers and Partners as an excellent persuasive lawyer who fights hard for her client. But there is more. Your expertise has also attracted media, clients and peers' recognition for your work in the fields of criminal and family law. You successfully argue highly emotionally charged cases involving neglected, sexually abused or abducted children before the county and the high courts. 
it seems that you have a resolute interest in issues where vulnerability is a crucial element. So it's not surprising that you have written various articles on violence against women and gender inequality. I'm therefore extremely grateful that you have accepted to share with us your knowledge and expertise on the subject of domestic violence, as well as your opinion and analysis on the new domestic abuse bill, which has just gone through its second reading in the House of Lords on the 5th of January 2021. So, shall we start by defining what domestic violence is and examining how abuse creeps in intimate relationships? Yes. Unfortunately, there isn't a single definition in respect of domestic violence or domestic abuse in the UK. And definitions can be found in various legislation, both in criminal and in civil family courts. The Home Office has sought to define domestic abuse for some time now, and this is what they say about it. They say it's in any incident or pattern of incidents, controlling, coercive or threatening behaviour, violence or abuse between those aged 16 or over who are or have been intimate partners or family members, regardless of gender or sexuality. This can encompass, but is not limited to, the following types of abuse, psychological, physical, sexual, financial and emotional. They then go on to define controlling behaviour as a range of acts designed to make a person subordinate and or dependent by isolating them from sources of support, exploiting their resources and capacities for personal gain, depriving them of the means needed for independence, resistance and escape and regulating their everyday behaviour. And then coercive behaviour is defined as an act or a pattern of acts of assaults, threats, humiliation and intimidation or other abuse that is used to harm, punish or frighten their victim. And there's a definition that I use, and I know others have used it, but I consider it to be an act of personal terrorism because it is effectively putting a person, when they should be in a comfortable, secure relationship, it is putting a person in fear on a daily basis. And that is exactly what it is. And we've moved on now from the idea that domestic abuse is is merely physical violence and actually... When you talk to survivors of domestic abuse, you realise that actually the physical acts of violence aren't the ones that leave the longest and the hardest scars in many respects, because it is the utter control that someone is exerting over another and that, you know, where they quite often are losing their mind. They are convinced of an alternative reality by the person that, that it's controlling them and that is incredibly disturbing and incredibly frightening. And coming out of that situation, it takes a lot to unpick. Uh, and that's why protective laws are so important, because it allows survivors the space to be mm-hmm. able to move on with their lives. Sure. Now, usually domestic violence or domestic abuse does not start at the beginning of a relationship. It just invites itself later on when the relationship is stable. Is that right? Yes and no. Some relationships, it can move very swiftly into a situation of control. And Mm -hmm. what usually is the precursor is effectively limit pushing and manipulation of a person in a relationship. So um, there's an incredibly good book that was written by Pat Craven, who pioneered the Freedom Programme, which is for survivors of domestic abuse and 
it's called living with a dominator and in that she defines what the domination is and it can be quite subtle at first and mm. it can be sort of dressed up as concern and love what often is the case when you talk to survivors of domestic abuse they say he was wonderful in the beginning I felt really loved mm. he made me feel like I was the only woman in the world and that's genuinely regarded as love bombing where you know you hook someone in quick Sometimes the victim has a vulnerability that the, the abuser can see and, and realises that at that particular time, that person is particularly vulnerable to that tactic, to that love bombing. Yes, they'll take advantage of that. People don't stay with people who have been universally abhorrent. What then usually happens is there's some bullying creeps in, controlling um, behaviour, It doesn't even have to be verbal. It can be sulking, driving too fast, glaring. Yeah. Emotional abuse can be making comments on the way that the victim lives their life, what they wear. They're not very good at their job. Mm-hmm. That the And this is a very common feature. Concerns and strident allegations that um, the victim is cheating. There's a lot of jealousy involved. Mm-hmm. So that the victim loses their self-confidence isolating is a very common tactic isolating the partner from her friends that can be done quite subtly mm. but basically sulking when the friends are around not engaging with them making comments about how the friends maybe don't serve you well making plans to clash with the victim seeing her friends moving her away from her network being a certain way so that invites aren't forthcoming There's also what we hear a lot of in the press is gaslighting. Yes, it's making the victim believe in a different reality and therefore that they're going crazy. A lot of lying, a lot of minimising, a lot of denying blame, blaming the behaviour on various things. His childhood works very stressful, finding excuses, mm. and then they will effectively make the victim feel that it's her fault. If there's children involved then he will potentially use the children to control the partner because it can be women as well um turning them against their mother making it difficult to make decisions about the children and then usually expects the victim to do the work around the house he'll control the money Mm. and that becomes the 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 victim's life and also sexual relations can be used Mm. to control Refusing sex, demanding sex, rape, all of these things can slowly come in. And so it's not just about physical abuse. It's about creating conditions that where the victim is in, is in such a place emotionally, so subjugated, that the behaviour can continue and escalate. And so one common tactic that's used is blackmail. If you leave, I will post you know, photos of you online, or if you leave, I will tell people that you've mm-hmm. committed a criminal act, even though they haven't. Um, often the, um, the the perpetrator will claim to be the victim in the relationship. They will scratch themselves and take photographs so that they've got documentation. They will write emails and text messages trying to get the victim to accept that they're the abusive one. You know, that, that this is high-level manipulation, And of course, on the outside, it's not always obvious that someone is a perpetrator because they will be charming to 
friends and family, perhaps, they will be charming to professionals that have dealings with them. They are quite capable of persuading police officers that there is nothing going on and that the woman is crazy. One massive red flag, I have to say, is when someone complains that all of their ex-partners were crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they've either had very bad luck or they're a perpetrator. Um, so, yes. Could you tell us whether there is a category of people more likely to fall victim of domestic abuse? I believe anyone can be a victim of domestic abuse mm. and it would range across all walks of life and across both genders and um, sexual orientation and ethnicities. There's often an assumption and a wrong assumption that if you were intelligent or highly educated, for example, or you are a strong person that you cannot be a victim of domestic abuse. We all have our vulnerabilities. And the point of domestic abuse is that perpetrators hone in on those vulnerabilities. So I do think that there are certain conditions that would make abuse easier. So, for example, if, if English isn't your first language mm -hmm. and you're reliant on your partner to be sort of conduit with the world at large, then that is a vulnerability that you have that can be exploited. Or if you think that involving the police would be prejudicial to your immigration status. No, if you had a mental health problem, for example, that is a vulnerability that can be exploited. So mm -hmm. the reality of it is anyone can be a victim. Mm -hmm. The assumption that this is something that is happens to weak people is simply wrong. And for me, the main issue, aside from protective measures that the law can provide, for me, the main issue is education. And educating young people about healthy relationships, educating people about young people about the signs to look for. What frustrates me more than anything is that there is so much academic learning out there. There's so much practical learning out there about how domestic abuse operates. And I mentioned the Freedom Programme. Um, there's a very good book called Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft, who um, over a period of a number of years worked with Um, domestic abuse perpetrators and obviously and thousands of men and he would always make his business to speak to the partner or the ex-partner mm -hmm. to really triangulate what he was being told by the perpetrator and the similarities of the characteristics that he's identified and is identified in living dominator and then across the board you know there's a formula to this every perpetrator won't use necessarily every single one mm. you know some might sulk others might shout but there is a formula and what frustrates me the most is the idea that we have this learning we have this information and yet people are still getting into abusive relationships and staying in abusive relationships where is the education on this topic and that I find very frustrating and then allied to that is the issue of educating professionals police officers social workers judges lawyers etc teachers mm -hmm. health workers anyone that might potentially pick up on a domestic abuse situation and particularly the police there have been some woeful examples of the police letting victims down assumptions that they make about the victim 
and women have died many women have died and men but mostly women and I feel that in order to try and stem what is undoubtedly a significant problem in the UK domestic abuse we need to think about the work the place education and has I mean I I say that anyone can be a victim of domestic abuse I have been and I I haven't made that particularly public before Mm. however and that's probably because I think well maybe people will think I'm weak in some way but hearing you um praise me in the in the opening and and mentioning that people say I'm I'm a good fighter I don't think that anyone would call me weak we certainly would not and but yet I found myself and it was very subtle it was very subtle at first Mm -hmm. and you know it's very easy to judge and it's very easy to judge a survivor and think that you know something about them I really hope that Mm -hmm. by sharing that that people will realize that this is this is not this is not something that happens to a specific set of people it happens to everyone and the only weakness I had was that I was willing to listen to the excuses and have compassion for the reasons why he said he acted the way he did none of which I realize now are valid but you know it's persuasive and um, manipulation Hmm. is an incredibly dangerous thing. Gemma thank you very much for sharing this highly personal information with us I think it's very important that successful professional women like you talk about their personal suffering because I do believe that it can help many others to see that shame does not have any place in this and that by speaking out the only thing you do is show how strong you are but of course it's easier said than done there is another preconception according to which some believe that if the situation was that bad then the victim should have left earlier but can you explain to us what really happens and why it's not that easy to leave Yes, there are a number of reasons um, why sometimes it's financial, because it's just, just financially they're concerned, children as a reason why they don't leave. But that there are practical reasons why people don't leave. There are emotional reasons why people don't leave. They perhaps have convinced themselves that it's not as bad as it actually is. Mm-hmm. They believe, because often an abuser will occasionally, when they sense someone is pulling away, apologize say that they will change their behavior that something will shift mm-hmm. is believed and so um therefore at the point that the victim is thinking of leaving they get told well, i'm going to change i've reflected on my behavior i'm going to see a therapist whatever the solution is yeah sometimes it's blackmail sometimes it's accusations will be leveled at them and they may have a lot to lose and sometimes it's fear yes because we know that the greatest moment of risk for a victim is when they leave. Yes, according to Femicide Census, among the women who have been killed by their partners, 89% were murdered in the first year of separation. So there is a very high risk. Um, Because if you think of it, if your personality type is that you control other people, and that's your desire to do that, you are utterly out of control when someone leaves your orbit and makes no contact with you. And that is a real flashpoint for an abuser. And that's why protective measures are really important. And sometimes, you know, 
victims have been told no one will believe you mm. and they and they start to believe it if you put someone down long enough then they'll believe it you know shouting at rages that could go on all night where then the victim hasn't really slept and it's very hard to make decisions when you're worn down um and you you yourself do feel um a little bit crazy because of what's the conditions in your home so there were all these very complex factors and i think um it's really troubling when i hear why didn't didn't they leave sooner they left and for that yeah. they should be applauded mm. Um, because it is incredibly hard and um, it's a real show of strength yeah, to do definitely. that. It's already very hard to leave any relationship at all, let alone one that is regimented by fear. Yeah. And also, if you think of it, you know, if someone is controlling you, if someone's yeah. checking your phone and your devices, if they're just always sort of around, particularly now with lockdown. It's difficult to plan. It's difficult. It's very difficult to plan, and it's very difficult to make mm. phone calls, and it's hard to be reassured that there is a solution. And there is a solution. You can get protective mm. measures, um, but that is something that is incredibly daunting and difficult if you are being controlled by someone. Mm. The, the idea that you might get caught executing that, that plan is is terrifying. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. In your experience, what are the consequences of domestic abuse on children and how could they be better protected? So I often hear, well, the children didn't see any violence, so it doesn't matter. That, that's fortunate that they didn't see any violence, and, but that's not, that doesn't mean that the perpetrator needs a commendation in any way because, as I say, physical violence is unlikely to be isolated Um, as the abuse system and so what usually um, the child is exposed to is actually a, a number of things first of all they will be witness to the control and the manipulation so if an abuser feels that they can control their partner they will also try and control their children they will put down perhaps the other parent in front of the child so it's difficult obviously physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse can be directed at the children as well. Yeah. Um, and also the view that the mm -hmm. abuser may hold, if it's, if it's a man, for example, about women generally um, and about um, the life view of the abuser, which I think it's plain from the descriptions I've made, is not one that you would necessarily commend um, and want your child to adopt. And then, of course, when the relationship breaks down and the, and the mother has to leave, the abuse can continue using the contact and using those arrangements. Of course, the abuser's got a free reign when the child mm -hmm. is in their property to say what they like about the other parent. It is a very difficult problem mm. and it really needs to be seen holistically rather than just they didn't ever see me hitting their parent that's not the point really yes clearly a leading charity in the field was saying that 90% of children are actually witnessing domestic violence so it could be physical violence but coercive uh, abuse as well and that could lead to anxiety depression PTSD if it's not addressed with a sufficient mental health support which is not necessarily always in place unfortunately yes exactly and difficult for them in the future to 
have a framework of what a healthy relationship looks like. And so they could go on to either be a perpetrator or a victim. So the cycle continues. Absolutely. So the new proposal is being discussed in Parliament right now, and there will probably be more consultation done about it. But could you tell us what this new domestic abuse bill offers to change? Yes. So it's a very interesting law and it's taken a long time to reach that point because there have been Brexit and COVID has rather interfered. It is a very welcome development because it does introduce new measures that will undoubtedly assist in relation to how victims of domestic abuse are treated and protected. The first thing is it creates a statutory definition of abuse for the first time to include emotional coercive and economic abuse as well as physical violence. This is the definition for the purpose of any other law. This is the framework, which I think is helpful. Local authorities will have a duty to provide secure accommodation for survivors, which is very important because at the moment, unbelievably, there is no Um, general obligation. So one factor that I think is very interesting and which I welcome with open arms is the creation of a domestic abuse commissioner. And that commissioner will have a remit to consider whether public authorities are acting consistently with their obligations. And that is incredibly welcome. I've been mystified why there has not been such a role previously. There is a duty for public authorities to hand over any information that mm -hmm. the commissioner needs. And one thing I've always wondered is why is there not spot checks of domestic abuse files in every police force? Because I think it would expose the problems and also be an incentive for the police not to make mistakes if they know that there are going to be sporadic checks. So The creation of a domestic abuse commissioner is fantastic and I'm very pleased mm -hmm. about it. There is a clause which is also very important or section which is it makes it clear that a victim can't consent to the infliction of serious harm for the purpose of obtaining sexual mm -hmm. gratification. Um, and that's really important because uh, we saw the case last year where rough sex was used as a defence Again, these are the sort of things that an abuser will say. And ultimately, rough sex doesn't lead to death. And that is an incredibly welcome step. And also sends a message. There's also an extension of jurisdiction, extraterritorial jurisdiction. So anything happening abroad, because obviously acts of domestic violence continue on holiday. It's not like you have a two week period where nothing happens or a week period. Or if There's an international aspect to a relationship. So that's really important and a welcome step. There's also a new protective measures. So there's, um, there is a domestic abuse notice that the police can issue. They believe domestic abuse is occurring. That doesn't, for the initial step, require the oversight of the court. So that's a real interim measure that I think is very useful. Mm -hmm. What the police then must do is apply for a domestic abuse prevention order, which effectively is an injunctive order, and would turn the notice into a civil order and breaching both this criminal offence. So 
it's really um, tightening up and ensuring that there are not periods of where there isn't a protective measure in place, which again, I, I believe is very useful. Those new protections, I mean, the domestic abuse protection notice and the domestic abuse protection orders are new form of protection for the victims. But what was there before that? And how does that actually bring any further protection for the victim? So there's a non-molestation order, which is the injunctive measure at the moment that you have to apply to court for. The police can't issue anything in the interim. You can apply very swiftly and you can apply without notice to the other party. And then once, if that order is made without notice, then there's a date by which everyone must go back to court and there's a decision as to whether that order should continue. But the domestic abuse protection order, I think it's a much clearer title than a non-molestation order for a start. I think it's sort of about the packaging and if it, you see it for what it is. Um, it effectively provides similar protection to the non-molestation order. It can be applied for by a police officer, mm-hmm. which isn't currently the case, and it can be applied for but what it says is a person specified in regulations made by the Secretary of State. And what I assume those regulations will be will be people like Health professionals, social workers, housing officers and such like. So anyone who's in a public field that might come into contact with domestic abuse victims. And also it allows any person with the permission of the court to make that application. So, again, it's it's really just ensuring that there are a wide range of people that can make that decision. And And sometimes, you know, a victim might want to make the application, but might not want to be seen to be doing that. So it, it does afford that sort of, well, my hands were tied, the police decided to make the application. So I think that is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you think the bill goes far enough because it's been criticised by some of the leading charities in the field for not addressing some very important points and that can still be changed before the bill becomes law? So what's your opinion on this? Well, I mean, one example which has been in the news where I think the law doesn't go further enough is non-fatal strangulation um, where someone is choked. It is terrifying and it is also quite a red flag to a consequential murder Mm. it's effectively as Gabrielle Bertin said in the press it's the ultimate control weapon because it's saying if I want to I can kill you right now and that is if you look at the reasons why people don't leave knowing that someone is capable of putting their hands around your neck and not letting go when you clearly want them Mm -hmm. to that sends a very strong message to the victim about what they can do. And there was a a statistic that 55 women in Britain suffer non-fatal strangulation every day. And a woman or girl was fatally strangled or asphyxiated every 10 days. Victims of non-fatal strangulation were seven times more likely than other domestic abuse victims to go on to be killed. The problem is there isn't a visible injury necessarily. And so it is an invisible and terrifying crime. One of the points that's been made about 
non-fatal strangulation is the fact that it is actually an offence. Yes, yeah, an offence of, of common assault that carries a sentence of six months. Absolutely. As I understand it, non-fatal strangulation is judged as common assault because there aren't or there might not be enough evidence to use the attempted murder offence, especially since the intention is not always or might not be to murder the victim, but more yeah. to frighten her. Yes, it is an intention to frighten. It's an intention to control. But it's also an intention, as I say, to let to let the victim know that I could actually keep my hands on your neck longer. They do really have to look at that again. I can see again looking at it from the other point of view because there is no injury. It is it is hard to substantiate that has taken place. But there are lots of crimes that don't have physical proof. It would just be a matter of credibility mm. of the victim's account. I read a terrifying statistic, which was the first three weeks of. The first lockdown, 14 women were killed by men, and that's the highest rate in more than a decade. Mm. And again, I think that really does underscore what what is going on in a home. And if a victim can't leave the home, how things can escalate. Because going mm. to work gets you out of the house. It's a legitimate reason to be out of the house. I mean, it doesn't mean that your abuser won't text you and ask what you're doing and why you're coming back late and who are you drinking with after work or etc etc but at least it means you're out of their orbit for a period of time Hmm. unfortunately leaving this emotionally charged subject for a moment let's talk about your personal experience Um, could you describe what your job entails and who are your clients so i I'm instructed by solicitors, but also now directly by members of the public uh, Mm -hmm. to represent them generally in court or to advise them on aspects of their case. So the majority of my work is court-based, but I do advise clients in relation to their legal matters or I draft documents for them. And I do extradition and family law. I started off doing crime. I then moved into extradition. And then because I was a paralegal in a family department prior to starting my PPH, which is training to be a barrister, I agreed one day to take on a family case because the clerks really needed to find a home for it. And it just went from there. I hadn't actually been trained formally in family law during my pupillage, but obviously I had spent a number of months as a fee earner in a solicitor's firm, and also I did the family module on the bar course, so I wasn't going in blind. You can also be directly instructed by clients. Yes, I think the direct access is something that I was very wary of. I think the bar genuinely was quite wary of it for a number of reasons. I think we were worried that solicitors would think that we were trying to steal their work. But certainly in family, my experience is that often because funds are limited, because legal aid doesn't apply to most cases, a lot of people are willing to represent themselves. And um, it's when it gets to a particular point in court, they think, actually, I do need someone who's specialist in this to step in. So I don't think that fear was something that was justified. And I think that it's, it does then for serve a really important role. So direct access it is a good thing. Mm, very good. Would you like to tell us how you've decided to become a barrister? 
Yes, yeah, so it's quite a funny story. My dad was a very successful police officer um, and very well liked. He always used to tell me stories of, of his working life and I saw how much he enjoyed his job and I thought, what a wonderful thing to go to work and love your job. So I thought maybe I'll want to be a police officer. He disabused me of that notion, telling me that I had to be able to run a mile in a certain amount of times and that they also do the blue test. <laughs> and that was the end of that aspiration. Um, but I suppose I always was quite drawn towards drama, but I was quite level-headed and I realised that it would be incredibly hard to become an actor. And so I was sort of trying to have a think about what possible career might be of interest if you've got these competing, I'm interested in the law and justice, but I also quite like the theatrics. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'll be a solicitor because, and I'm talking at this time of the age of about 10. And then I had to do work experience when I was about 14. And unhelpfully, we just got this list of names of businesses without any inclinations to what they are. And so I chose one that sounded like a solicitor's office and then went home. And this shows how old I am. I went home and I looked up in the yellow pages what I'd signed myself up for. And to my absolute horror and my absolute horror, it was an accountancy firm and I was not destined to be an accountant. I said to my dad, going, I mean, what am I going to do? This is a disaster. He thought it was hilarious. He said, you just got to go in and speak to your form tutor and just explain your mistake and ask if I could possibly get you an in with a solicitor's firm in town. Mm -hmm. And so my father that day had already been teeing up a particular firm, Stephen Rimmers in Eastbourne. So I went to do my work experience there However, the first day of the work experience, I was told that we were going to London to the temple to have a conference with council and just walking from temple station up to cloisters chambers. Mm -hmm. I thought, this is, this is the life. <laughs> this is what I want to do. And then I sat in and, and heard the advice the barrister was giving and just thought, I really want to do this. Um, and so I did a law degree. Very good. So what has been your greatest success so far? Yes, I think that being a junior in, in the Supreme Court was an utterly wonderful experience. It was a joy. It was wonderful to have that opportunity. And, and what about your most significant hurdle and how have you overcome it? As a teenager of the 90s, sort of very girl power movement, thinking that, you know, being a woman... Being from a state-educated background, I thought mm. neither of those attributes were things that would, would hold me back in any way. And I'm not saying I've been held back, but I have experienced discrimination in respect of both of those characteristics. Stupid things like um, an opponent who, when I came back on something, he said, oh, I'm sure your honour's not interested in this unseemly bickering. And it was just the word bicker, it just was unfortunate. And it was the same opponent who tried to get our case called into court by saying she, and then pointing his thumb at me, has got a baby bawling at home, um, which was just astonishing behaviour. In many respects, I find them hilarious. I think that behaviour is just bizarre and discourteous. But, you know, at least you know they're your foe, but it's the more unspoken discrimination that's, that's difficult and I, and I think 
the bar has come a long way. I think that the bar takes very seriously any kind of discrimination. And one of Chambers Equality and Diversity Officers, it's important in all walks of life. But I think when you look at the law and it being sort of the framework within which society operates, and if the gatekeepers of that framework aren't a diverse bunch, you've got a problem. So I think it's very important that we don't take for granted that there's still a long way to go. Mm, Definitely. Could you describe to us the moment when you felt the proudest to be a lawyer? Without wanting to sound corny, and I know it's going to sound that way, but I'm just very proud to be a barrister. It was not an easy road, but I'm proud to call myself a member of the bar. I think it's a wonderful profession. I think it's a profession that does so much good. And we have a very clear code of conduct, for the most part, do, you know, do adhere to. And I think that we do incredibly important work across all mm-hmm. spectrums, you know, not not just protecting the vulnerable, although, of course, the way in which any society protects its vulnerable members and its children really does paint a picture of that society. But across all spectrums, we do important work, we do difficult work. I'm just incredibly proud to be a member of the bar. Mm, very good answer. <laughs> um, have you got any last piece of advice that you'd like to share with aspiring barristers? Yes, um. <laughs> never give up. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a very, you know, for some people, it's an incredibly easy road because they are just so academically gifted and it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to sail through. But it's not just about academics. It is also about personal experience. And I think on that point, that's mm-hmm. what I've realised from looking at pupillage applications. That's where your background can hold you back somewhat because it's sometimes harder to access things from a state education. It's not always geared to you acquiring the most useful interpersonal skills. And, you know, it's all very well if your parents can afford, for example, for you to go and doing an internship for a UN tribunal or or something similar. But if if funds are tight and it's hard to just become a barrister financially, um, then you aren't always going to have glittering CV that you think you should have. But what I would encourage any aspiring barrister, I mean, regardless of background, but particularly if there are certain limitations, is to really think outside the box and think, what is it that I can do that will give me an understanding and give me the skills for this? Do your research, make yourself interesting, Mm -hmm. but also it's not actually just about ticking things on a CV. It is about gaining life experiences that will help you in the future. I didn't have the most exciting of CVs. I did an awful lot of holiday work in some quite dreadful places, but I spun it to say, you know, look, I can work with an array of people. I can pick up different jobs quickly. That's a skill that barristers have to have. You get your case the night before, you've got to get on it and sort it out. You can spin genuinely useful things to your advantage and Mentors are very important. If you can do work experience, that's very important. If you can try and forge relationships on work experience that you can call upon later on. It's just really looking for opportunities mm-hmm. and just never give up. You know, I'm sure there are so many barristers who've thought about this is all just getting too difficult. Swear into your coffee in the morning and wonder whether this is the life for you. It is. 
the life for you if you want to persevere with it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very encouraging. Thank you. Gemma, you've been providing us with really insightful analyses about the law, but also the environment in which domestic violence thrives. And you have shared with us some amazing and at times very personal information about yourself and advice about the barista profession. I'm absolutely sure that this episode is going to be very helpful for many listeners. So thank you very much for the time that you spent with us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. The information contained on this episode is not to be interpreted as legal advice, but is provided for informative purpose only. Formal legal advice should be sought for any specific case. Our guests are presenting their personal opinions in the context of an informal conversation and do not speak on behalf of their employers, partners, contractors or clients. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of A Question of Law. Your engagement with the show is at the heart of its success. The show has already received a fantastic amount of support and I'm really thankful for this. But the challenge is to keep you, the audience, engaged and fascinated. So if you have appreciated the show, please let me know by tuning in for the next one, rating and sharing the episodes and leaving comments. So until the next question of law, keep well.